Hello and welcome to Anime to Z, the podcast dedicated to all things anime. I'm Shay Lingo, rapper and musician and self-professed otaku. And I'm Beck Hill, a comedian, writer and artist. And if anime were a language on Duolingo, I'd probably be on level two. But we're leveling up. We are. Yes. Yeah. You feel like you've learned more already. Oh, heck yes. You've seen my 180 on this. Yeah, I was yeah. a bit like, oh, it's such a simple story. And now... After our discussions, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is creative genius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit up and down. I feel like one and one was one was okay, two was two was getting there, three was spectacular. Yeah, yeah. And now we're going to talk about four. That's right. Today we're talking about the fourth and final film and the rebuild of Evangelion franchise, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.01. I'm saying zeros for my maths fans. Thrice upon a time. That's easier to say, isn't it? Yeah. Let's say that. Which is streaming exclusively right now on Prime Video UK. Are you ready, Shay? I am. Are you? I am. Lovely. Let's get into it. Ba-da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, speaking about the title, obviously it's switched up now from the you can not mm-hmm. sort of thing. Why do you think that is? Do you know, on a deeper one, I think the whole kind of point of the entire franchise is to like make you uncomfortable with the <laughs> with the pacing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To keep your mind and your heart and your your spirit engaged in a in a different way to any other film or, or cinematic experience. Mm. So yeah, probably that. Like I just feel like it's a pacing thing that they just wanted to switch it up. Plus, it's a really sick name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess my theory is that, like, the in the first three, because there's so much about dealing with debilitating aspects of depression, it does very much feel like you can't do anything. And then this one, by not having that in there, maybe suggests that there's a little bit of hope, mm. you know, mm. which we'll uh, talk about soon. It alludes to, like, the once upon a time kind of situation, but obviously where we've seen three situations happen now in the in the actual kind of franchise yeah and this is the last one so it's probably a play on words as well in that capacity i mean it is a play on words in that capacity but yeah i think i think it's a great name i think it's a great name and i think they've i think they've used it in a great way given what happens in thrice upon a time how do you feel about being on plot recap duty today <laughs> yeah that's I'll, I'll just simplify it shall i it's All not right. me i'm gonna try and do the best i can so it's the aftermath of the fourth impact shinji ashka and ray are stranded so we saw that at the end of the third film walking through the red remains of tokyo 3 Meanwhile, Masato and Ritsuko confront Gendo, who still wants to enact the human instrumentality project, which is that thing where they want to like let everyone die so that gods can evolve to the next level. I don't know, something. It's crazy. I know. It? We will talk about that more yes, as well. We'll get more into that. Eventually, Shinji pilots Unit 1 and fights against his father and ends up ending up in a negative space called Imaginary Evangelion, where they clash in multiple different locations across space, time, and other Evangelion continuities. Gendo's additional impact is eventually prevented by Masato, who dies in the attempt. And then, oh my goodness, and then just a lot of stuff happens. Yeah. yeah we end up sort of with some uh, tying up of loose ends using the train analogy stuff. We end up in a in a train station at the end. And uh, I believe the end, the very last frame as the credits roll is all live action. Yeah, that and was... And you can see two people running, and I don't know whether they got actors Bro. or whether that's CGI. I, my TV's not big enough to make it out. Firstly, RIP my G Masato. 
because yeah like she went out like an absolute gangster like she i know like this is it this is it and then like the massive explosion just hits her head on do you know what i mean and then like the whole ship just kind of blows up and oh yeah that was such an amazing oh man yeah it was i think for me number four was like really well done really Mm. well animated the pacing was really good i don't think you've missed anything well oh i have but in I mean, terms of plot summary, how do you summarize the plotless plot? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first thing I want to highlight out of what you've spoken about was that like new edition Ray is kind of assimilating into real life and becoming this person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? She just kind of becomes a much more human individual and they and they spend so much time kind of showing those showing those developmental points. Oh my god, this is what crying is like. This is what sadness is like this is what happiness is like this is what embarrassment feels like very very simple emotions very like instinctual kind of ways to feel that she's only just feeling for the first time yeah well it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes which is that the quality of life is directly linked to the capacity for delight and your capacity for delight lies in paying attention and so it was very much about someone experiencing the things that we take for granted Mm. about asking why do we do this or what Mm. does this mean and Mm. a lot of the time it's that paying attention that helps dig us out of those holes so it was almost like showing a little bit of a way but without having to place it on Shinji whose whose story is in a different their journey's in a different place but for Ray you're able to sort of see the benefits of of doing that yeah I think one of the one of the points in like Ray's kind of human assimilation arc within within the film that I really, really enjoyed that gave me a real breath of fresh air, similar to what you were saying, but was a specific point where she's planting, like, uh, plants. Oh, yes, the, the uh, rice. Yeah, the, yeah, I think it's rice, into the ground. They're telling her the technique, like, use free hands, be gentle, rah, rah, rah. And she gets it wrong. Like, she's so used to taking orders, but I've, I don't think I ever really see her get anything wrong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and I was like, oh my God, are they going to like, is this the bit where it kind of shows that she's not human? Do you know mm. what I mean? Are they going to kind of shun her or look at her funny? Or are they going to do a side eye or whatever? And they were just like, no, it's cool. That's just how work goes. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. that was such a lovely, I think she says like, what's work? And they were like, that's a good question. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. like, I think it's just when you sweat together, like you just take time and you build something and you you share, you share labor. Do you know what I mean? In a mm. certain, I don't think they say that, but in a certain capacity, and I was just like, oh, this is so like beautiful. Well, before we get into the deeper analysis segment of the podcast, what context do we need to know? Evangelion fans have been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And the film was originally slated for a 2015 release. Yeah, why, why did it take six years after that? From what we understand, I know was dealing with depression. Things and factors like COVID... And all of these other little bits and pieces that made it difficult for them to to release and stick to the schedule and stuff. When he decided to go back to Evangelion and just kind of rebuild it and, and give it give it a new angle, especially for the ending in the second half of it, he actually he actually said that Evangelion is my soul. It's a work that scrapes away bits of my soul. Oof. Yeah, it was that that changed the entire experience for me. Yeah. That and knowing when he quoted that he was dealing with depression at the time. Yeah. And this is his life. And in a nutshell, he is he is essentially Shinji and the world that Shinji lives in. That was like a big turning point for me. I, I mean, we've spoken about it in a previous episode, mm. but that was a big turning point for me in terms of the whole experience of absorbing 
what Evangelion is. Have you ever felt like, because obviously we're both creative types, have you ever had something that took way longer to do than you expected? Oh, definitely. And anything that's felt like it was scraping off bits of your soul? Oh, mate. <laughs> Uh, What's your Evangelion? I don't. I don't even know if I, I have any soul left. No, I do. I do. I'm lying. I'm lying. I take it back. I do have. I can soul see left. it shining at your eyes. Out my Shay. eyes. I've still got the glimmer of hope. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The album. I released my album, The Worst Generation, October of last year, and that that year, uh, leading up to the release of the album, was an was an insane process. Like I, I had my worst injury of my life that year. I tore I tore my Achilles on my right foot. <sighs> Oh yeah! Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. I tore my Achilles on my right foot. How? Me, uh, if I, if you don't mind me. That's no, fine. Playing basketball, <laughs> uh, which, which is which is kind of worse than if it was like some super noble, dramatic saving a cat from a tree yeah. type situation, or you know what I'm saying, or a ball in the road and the child goes and you jump in front of the, you know what I'm saying? It, yeah, it's none least, of that. I was just playing ball. I was driving to the net and it popped. That's it. Do you know what I mean? At least you didn't get it like by doing something bad. Yeah, like you didn't get real. it from kicking a child. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, yeah, it was, it was, there was definitely some soul scraping last year leading into the album. I mean, I was building the album. I was traveling to the other side of London. I had to get cabs everywhere, which was super expensive just mm. because I physically couldn't walk on my leg. I had the boot on. You have to sleep in the boot. Like, I had family members in hospital. My grandma died that year. Like, there was, and I was trying to build the album. It was the first, and as my debut album, it was like, there was just a lot happening. I couldn't sleep. So I was, because I was sleeping in the boot, obviously it was the height of summer that year. Oh yeah, as well. and you can't roll over. Do you know and what stuff? I mean? And yeah, it was just it was just a lot. It was a lot. Like that is the short version, but that definitely there was definitely some soul scraping mm. um, involved in that process. So yeah, it definitely can. There's a lot that can hinder the process, especially given the state of the world at that time. Do you know what I mean? What about you? I think the last solo stand up show I did in 2019 was one. Uh, it was an idea that I'd had. I think at least six years before I actually ended up doing it and realised that I couldn't do it unless I built up some other skills yeah. because I wanted some of it to be ad-libbed and I wanted it to just have all these different things happening. And so I took a long time working on that because each show and in between that was to build up my skills so that when I eventually did that one, I had the ability to pull off what I wanted to pull off. That's a sick level of foresight. Yeah, yeah. But it did mean that as soon as I'd done it, I was like, oh, I have no other ideas for shows now. Like it's almost like everything had been building up to that for ages. So that very much felt like the uh, long anticipated thing. And every now and then I'd think, oh, maybe I'll do it next year. And then I'd be like, oh, no, I want there to be a bit of acting in it. Okay, I better concentrate on acting for a little bit. You know, like it just sort of kept building. Yeah, so it is a bit like that. And it did feel a bit like scraping off my soul because it was the most personal show I'd written as well mm. so yeah yeah it's interesting and then uh, you know after that I started to be like okay what other paths have I not have I not journeyed down yet yeah, yeah, yeah. which makes me wonder what Arno's up to now like what do you That's, do once you finish that off for real where do you go I think we've had this conversation but I've definitely found myself needing to go and live more of life because I gave so much to that project to that album mm. do you know what I mean it's like oh my god everything that I think that I've been building up to is now off me do you know what I mean and it's in the world and I can't take it back and it's there now what else do I have to offer do you know what I mean yeah you gotta refill yeah and that knowing that and feeling that that kind of for want of a better phrase that uselessness right after you've had such a purposeful moment and people have seen you in the light that you almost want them to see you in to like respect you as an artist and a creative that is like such a debilitating feeling do you know what I mean which can drive you straight back into 
depression. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? So yeah. it's it's ve- it would be it would be respectfully very interesting to know what Anno's up to now. And with that being said, I'd like to welcome to the studio writer, filmmaker, and anime lover Aaron Stewart on. That was me doing crowd sound effects. <laughs> that would work well in an anime series. Yeah, thank you. Just yeah, I'm that. working on my foley on my foley work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, to start with, what is your personal history with Evangelion? <laughs> I watched it on VHS tapes in the UK at God just before the turn of the millennium, or maybe 2001, in a flat in London in Fulham Broadway, while I was going oh. to film school at the London Film School. At that time, it was still impossible to see the films in English. So I, I, I devoured the VHS tapes and like, uh, and you had to buy like two episodes of tape. It was very expensive to watch. And then I got my hands on an imported VCD in Chinatown of the movie End of Evangelion. What? Yeah. And I had to watch it with a, a printed out English fan translation and, and read it while I was watching. And, and that movie, you know, End of Evangelion is... I mean, it's a, it's very difficult to watch, even if you're fluent in the language. So that was my first experience watching it. But more incredibly to me was just that at that time, around the turn of the millennium, me being an adolescent, just, just coming out of adolescence, you know, I hung out with a group of people online who were the precursors to social media we have today. And we, we were, I think, uh, united by being kind of socially disaffected and dealing with issues we didn't really comprehend. And what happened was this anime series spread through the group like this wildfire, and it changed the lives of a lot of these young people. Like, they no longer wanted to just stay online all the time. They wanted to try and, you know, change their lives. Like, I, wow. I remember distinctly having a conversation with somebody telling me that, he didn't really want to hang out online for the rest of his life. He wanted to go out and have a life. And it was completely the effect of seeing the final episode of the animated series, mm. which I think was the intent of it. And what I can say that's really fascinating, if, you've, if we're going to discuss the rebuild films, the, the series, and this is part of, I think one of the most difficult things about Evangelion is it's so metatextual and metavisual. Like if you understand the story of Hideaki Anno's creative career, the people around him, his origins, how he became an animator, his life story, and how it's interwoven into Evangelion, it's richer for it, which, you know, like art that's like that can be quite difficult. But but what he did with Evangelion is so extraordinary to me because he made something so personal yet iconic. It's so avant-garde and alienating on one level, and at the same time, it's something that's broken through in the pop culture subconscious in such an incredible way. You know, in, in Japan, it's on coffee cans and bullet trains and train stations. I mean, it is part of just, the, you know, the collective pop unconscious there in a really broad way. It's been successful, but it's very, very weird. And it's, you know, somebody making something that's filled with tropes of everything they love from childhood and then halfway through it realizing that they have depression that's been undiagnosed their entire life and they try to confront it in this thing they're making and and there's this incredible arc to the history of Evangelion where that's what happened Hideaki Anno partway through making the series realized that he hadn't really figured out the character of Rei Ayanami enough he hadn't done the work and it was becoming successful which was kind of a surprise too 
more successful than they anticipated. A friend gave him a book about Jungian theory, and he read it. He'd never read any psychoanalysis before, and he was like, oh my god, I've been depressed my whole life. This is this is my issue. But Jungian, and I think is represented really well in, in Evangelion, Carl Jung's theories, are that there's a collective unconscious full of symbols that we all access and have a certain sort of power. And that's fascinating to me that he discovered that halfway through the series because I feel Evangelion has always been full of this. You know, repurposing of Gnosticism and Christian uh, allegory and, and, and visuals in a really, like naive or you know blasphemous way that's really fascinating because the creators weren't really familiar with christianity they were appropriating it uh, and they did something really strange with it where I, I, at times i feel there are visuals in the series that feel forbidden like you're watching something you know that was locked away under the ocean for human eyes not to see and it's just some of the the, the striking imagery and it's really pushed you know to the fore in the rebuild films but in the in the original series your your original question was about that something that's incredible is he diagnosed himself with depression he kept making the series they were running out of money and he made the final two episodes completely against the odds i mean it's full of extremely crude hand animated roughs pencil drawings Sometimes there's a squiggly line with a lot of voice acting because they just had no money. And it's just like this incredibly raw, primal expression. And it's incredibly optimistic. The television, the original television series of Evangelion ends with like the happiest ending you could ever hope to see. And, and it basically just says like, you know what, all this stuff, just go live your life outside. And that's what he attempted to do. And it's pretty easy to find interviews in the Japanese language where he, he's actually quite open about this. And something I'm fascinated by Hideaki Anno is, you know, in Asia, I'm Asian American, but, you know, we, we generally talk about how we don't often approach mental illness with candor, you know, or, or it's something that we kind of suppress in our community or we don't seek help for or discuss openly. And, and, and the traces of that go back to our origins, you know, in our, in our families in, in some ways. And Hideaki Anno is a successful figure in Japan who has been incredibly forthright about having been affected by depression. I mean, you could, his company's bio for him used to talk about how after he made an anime series, he couldn't work for three years because he just flat out suffered from depression. Mm. Uh, and he's so open about that. Uh, it's kind of extraordinary. And so what happened was he made this extremely like raw statement, this cry for help in the original series. It came out and half the people loved it. It had become a huge success by that point. Uh, with an extraordinary number of viewers, and half the viewers hated it. Mm. Like, you know, th they thought they were heading towards uh, a robot apocalypse that would have all the answers of all this cryptic, you know, mystery that had been built up in the series, and that's not what they got. So like Twin Peaks, like, you're like, oh, now this will all make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of say it like, it, like it, it, it's like the series is kind of a ground zero for a lot of series that have followed in its wake in a funny way given the time it came out. But, I mean, it got to the point where, you know, and this was also concurrent with a time in Japan where this idea of fan culture had become otakudom. Mm. And Hideaki Anno was in the first generation of that. And 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 it became almost problematic, you know. It, it, it was like talking about people who were such fans that they couldn't cope with normal society. And Evangelion, like the end of the series, was this beautiful, like, expression of, like, no, you don't have to live your life that way. There are other possibilities. But, 
you know, he got death threats. And, and this, these are documented. Like, you know, wow. and he's been open about this. So as a result, you know, like a few years later, he's like, okay, we're going to make a movie, End of Evangelion. We're going to remake the final two episodes and give you what you wanted. And the resulting movie is like one of the most hardcore just assaults on an audience I've ever seen. I mean, if you are, it would be as if, you know, they took the criticism from The Last Jedi, the Star Wars film, and the final Star Wars film started with them actually showing footage of Star Wars fans being mocked for, you know, not being open to new ideas. I mean, there is, there is stuff in, in, in Evangelion. It breaks the fourth wall. There's a shot of people watching Evangelion oh, wow. in the movie theater. It becomes so meta. It breaks through animation and, and actually, you know, turns the camera at the audience. It gets really crazy. And I just, End of Evangelion, the first time I ever saw it, I was watching it with, uh, uh, you know, my partner at the time. She was Irish. She she didn't understand Japanese. She just wandered in the room while I was watching it, this VCD copy. She sat down next to me and she saw some of it, you know, without any comprehension of the language. And she started crying. Like, like the imagery was just so raw it's a work of art that's very, to me, there's a lot of argument and interpretation about this years later, but the, it's very assaultive. It is very in your face. And it's sort of like, oh, this is what you wanted. I'm going to give you the most extreme version of that. And maybe you're going to see yourself in the mirror. I mean, it's it's also a very bleak, nihilistic film. And and I think it's, it's you know, sort of ancestral cousin in the rebuild films is uh, the third one, which is, you know, very, very dark and, and, and bleak. And, you know, it goes off in a new direction, but one that leaves you feeling like there's no hope left. And in fact, it, it pushes even more aggressively how dire the situation becomes in the world that the, the, these characters have gotten themselves into. Are we happy with where the characters have ended up? Are we happy with the way that Shinji's journey's gone? Do we feel like everybody's played their part? How do we feel about that? Well, like it's hard for me to think about it without being meta about what has come before. And there's even some funny illusions in the rebuild films, especially the final one in, in 3.0 plus 1.0. There are illusions that there's a sort of loop in time, you know, a, a repetition or a possibility of multiple uh, universes. Mm. Uh, specifically when Kawaru uh, uh, wakes up on the moon and there's a series of coffins that are empty in front of him and a series of coffins to the other side that are full. Wow. It, it looks like he's been replaying this over and over, this scenario or something, perhaps. And you know what? They allude to that a lot, actually. There's a lot of points where they speak about, like, a cycle or they speak about having been somewhere before. They speak about... They say it like they've done it before. There's a context of having been here before, done this before, experienced this before. And some some certain characters are just very used to that situation. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's very many sort of meta call-outs. And that's what I'm saying about Evangelion. It's a fascinating work in that uh, it is sort of indivisible to think of it without, you know, knowing something about how it was created and, and its context. And I think it's playing with that. Uh, Anno is into creating mysteries that he's never going to resolve. And some of those mysteries are predicated upon, like, the, the thing itself. I am very happy with, I, I am extraordinarily happy with where the fourth film ends up. I, I, I think in many ways it is a reprise of the original ending of the the series it is just as hopeful which i think is an is going to be an extraordinary shock to many people but in a very different more mature way and it embraces adulthood and i think something really extraordinary if, I, if we get really spoilery 
that happens is, you know, the the final sequence, we see uh, Shinji as an adult, finally. Yeah. For the first time ever. In all the permutations we've ever seen Shinji, this is the first time we've ever seen him as an adult. So I, I think there's a very clear, wonderful message coming through of, of you know, there's a point where you have to break out of things and, and, and come of age. And I, I think the series is really saying it's doing that for the first time. So it's breaking cycles and shaking things up. But so yeah, some characters end up in different places, and some hardcore fans are going to be upset. But I think they're kind of missing the point, which is that even back in the original series, it was always postulated that really the series was about all the journey of these young characters confronting these iconic, symbolic, you know, catastrophes, and how they got through them with their will and their soul intact, and how they interpreted it and, and, and came to see that they define their own reality. And I think that's exactly what happens at the end of the fourth film. Like even more overtly, Shinji is given very clearly a choice to create the realities he would like to see in the world. Just then when you were talking about the hand-drawn pictures in the series, I was like, oh, there was a little bit of that in, you know, in this film, which feels like it was obviously a nod to it or something that he liked from it that he wanted to keep. There's some incredible trivia about that. I mean, he, his very first job ever was, was a professional job. Was He was an animator for Ghibli. For me, well, actually, not even yes. Ghibli. Ghibli hadn't informed yet. They, they wanted to do this hand-animated sequence uh, for Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, and they couldn't find the equipment to do it anywhere in Japan except for at Ghibli. Okay. So... You know, I, there's some documents online you can find the animators. They're on the old animation cell table shooting those, you know, hand-drawn pencil drawings that end up in the final film. And, yeah, again, we're breaking through to this meta level where we're deconstructing animation emotionally tied to the character's journey where we're seeing animation revert to its crudest state and, and it's mirroring what the character has been through. Like, I, I think there's something really, really extraordinary there, and I think it's the thing that, Anno has tried to say over and over and over again. It's almost like music where instead, you know, the 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 pitch is different, you know? Like it's the same song, but at a different pitch. And and the first series was very happy pop. The second, you know, end of Evangelion was the dark, like mm-hmm. metal, <laughs> like yeah. uh, doom-laden riff. And then the final films have been uh, almost optimistically pop. And I think end with that beautiful, beautiful song by Hikaru Utada. Yeah, it, it, it's it's all kind of unified in this really extraordinary way for me. And moreover than that, it's weird. It's like I, I'm I'm very happy with where the characters end up. It feels far more definitive than previous versions. But and this may sound overly sentimental, but I'm very happy with where Hideaki Anno has ended up. I felt that like it feels like as you're explaining, it feels like you are very connected to Hideaki Anno's like person. And the being that he was at that time, it, it feels like you followed it in real time. Do you know what I mean? And you related to it in real time. I can feel it as you're speaking and as you're as you're kind of explaining and just kind of dissecting the points and then relating it back to who and how he how he processed that depression and and, and those stages of that and then exploited it so so brazenly against culture, against all these different these different aspects that would have told him to suppress it in a very pressurized but maybe indirect way. It feels extremely real. It feels extremely real. I think one of the most extraordinary things, you know, Mari is the character that kind of breaks new ground and some people have issues with. And I think the thing about the original Evangelion and the difference with the films is in Anno's own life, 
what happened was he married a, a manga artist, an incredible manga artist named Moyoko. She now goes by Moyoko Anno. And she, she does really incredibly elaborate art, but she also does these like cutesy comic mangas about their life. There's an incredible amount of candor in these, like, and, and, and a lot of openness about what it's like to have to live with somebody like Hideaki Anno. I mean, she, she, she draws herself as like this, you know, crude cartoon character. But, you know, in, in the end of this book, it's called Insufficient Direction by his wife. He, he wrote an essay and I'm just going to read this passage to you. He's talking about her manga and he says, instead of making you want to dwell in yourself, her manga makes you want to go outside and do something. It emboldens you. It's a manga for tackling reality and living among others. My wife lives like that. And I think that's why she can write like that. Her manga accomplished what I couldn't do in an Evangelion to the end. Wow. So when I tell you these, I, like, I'm not basing this off of crazy fan theories. I'm basing this off of things he's actually said and written, you know, very, very explicitly. And this was before he made the rebuild films, you know, just before. Right. And how, how does Mari tie in with that? This new feminine character is introduced who shakes up the sort of like classic love triangle. And she just represents a very different force. And actually for See, me... I because I didn't get that. Like, I don't have anything to compare it with. So I guess maybe com in comparison, her character seems like a breath of fresh, like fresh air. But when she came in for me, I was like, oh, it's another woman without a backstory who we don't really know much <laughs> about. She's sexy. She's there to provoke stories. And then she comes in when they need her and then they get rid of her when you don't need her. Like to me, I was like, it's an, it's, it's much of the same without meaning disrespect of to, course, to anyone or Arno, but that, that was my personal coming to it. I think your critique is totally valid. To me, she comes across as one of my favorite types of characters, which is a chaotic mm. neutral. Like she has, she has, I'm just here for all the smoke. I love, I love all of the battles. Uh, you smell like LCO. That is my Dior Sauvage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's like, yeah. that's my fragrance. Like she's very involved. She's very present, but she's also very spinal. Like she's, that she's almost not there, but she plays such pivotal roles when she is there and she changes the flow of battle and she has quite interesting takes. And then towards the we end... We call of, that manic pixie dream girl in really? filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> and then towards the end, she takes this... She takes on this kind of other persona of being a lot more, dare I say, maternal. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. she, she becomes mm. this different kind of a lot more caring, a lot more considered character, almost like as if she was like Asuka and Misato put together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, a, like a sexy big sister. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> Evangelion has a really fascinating history with what's called fan service in anime, mm. which is basically leering perversion um, <laughs> and, and, and satisfying the audience's demands. And Anno is very self-aware of it. I mean, I think Evangelion, the, like the second film in the series, is one of the most funny, horned-up teenager comedies ever made. In some ways, like every every scene, the teenagers just seem to be like anxiously shaking at the thought that people might be horny or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's there, and the movies and the series have always been kind of hyper aware and ironic about it. Anno has said very critical things about it, about how, and and this is the essential conflict I feel that's at the heart of what he was trying to make. It, it's like. He said the problem with anime is that it's like pornography and that it's made to satisfy everyone's fantasies and that doesn't give you all the tools to deal with life if you're just satisfied by consumer goods. Wow. And, and so there is this weird thing. Now, I will say, I have one thing to say about Mari because like, I'm kind of with you. Like she, 
the the problem Anno has even said publicly too he had a big problem when they were writing the second film where they go off and introduce your character where things are so delicately balanced between the characters introducing her was really difficult for him and he wasn't sure if he got it right the one thing that is very different about Mari that has never been seen in the series before which I think is a huge tell is she is the only character who enjoys piloting an Evangelion like, you know, so much of the series is about how tortured these children are and having to do this. They're going inside, you know, clones of their mothers, <laughs> mm. breathing their blood. And, and it's a painful, horrible thing that they have to do. Whereas previously in anime, it's always like this incredible power fantasy, where, whereas in Evangelion, it's tragic. Uh, but Mari is the first character who shows up and is just like, yay, this is awesome, you know? Yeah. What, you wouldn't say that Asuka likes piloting as well? Asuka has always been the character who, on the surface, and they do really interesting things with her in the final film, I feel. She, she's the one, and, and, and uh, the problem is, I think they, to make Mari, they split off a big piece of Asuka from the mm, movies, you know, mm-hmm. as she'd originally been. She's always been the character who, on the surface, has this, like, you know, arrogant joy at what she does, but internally is uh, complete, completely displaced. Yeah, is completely tormented yeah and lonely you know did did the movies fully achieve that i don't know the meta side of evangelion i talk about i feel like it's a really interesting work of art that's basically asking is making art healthy <laughs> like you know at times it's like saying this thing that we do if you equate piloting the evangelion which is like such a trope in japanese culture you know adolescents piloting giant robots and surviving great odds if you equate that to the act of creation and making art you know evangel it was just it was really unique in that it was the first series where you know, the protagonist was passive and didn't enjoy it and was full of self-doubt and plagued. Like, they were given the chance to drive the most amazing, you know, bioweapon Evangelion Unit 1. Uh, and, like, by the third episode, they're, you know, running away from everybody and hiding in the woods and crying all the time. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and then in, in, in this fourth film, you know, once again, we see... I think an, a remarkable depiction of what depression does to you. You know, Shinji spends the first half of the film catatonic and unable to help anyone. There, there's a scene where, and this has always just been a really interesting hallmark of Evangelion to me, where, you know, it, it, it's jokey, it's ridiculous, it has killer robot action, and then sometimes has these scenes that are just so psychologically raw. The scene where Asuka force feeds Shinji, yes. you know, yeah. if you have. It's animated in a different style from the rest of the entire film. Yeah, it becomes like almost like a handy cam type. Yeah, yeah. I think that and the uh, one of the opening fight scenes at some point as well. They get this, but that one in particular where she's force feeding him, it feels like it's being filmed by a cameraman who's trying to get out of the way of the action. Right, um, right. Yeah, it's a yeah. really amazing way to put that. Yeah, and it, and it's so um, you know it, it's a depiction of depression. I mean, if you've had friends who have been severely depressed like that they can't get off of a couch to feed themselves uh, like you know you're confronting it in this really hyper stylized anime it's it's kind yeah. of extraordinary yeah so, so there's this metal level of evangelion where it's like to me often asking you know is making art healthy for us or is making these fantasies healthy for us and and the pilots have always been a kind of metaphor for people who you know creating things like is it good and healthy for us and that's why i feel like mari like i think i think mari is kind of you know representative of anno meeting this person in his life who takes great joy in what they do mm. and he's just constantly being inspired by that and there's this really beautiful short 
anime called The Big Turnip that you can find online. And it was made by the studio that makes the Evangelion films now, Studio Kara. And it's it's uh his his wife, you know, created the story. And it's the story of Anno creating Kara and uh, bringing all his friends to work there and, and making these films. And they're always represented as a giant turnip there growing in a field. But they also depict how he became so depressive that for four years he couldn't work. He contemplated suicide. He credits Miyazaki and his wife with saving his life, you know, where he, he actually hit his rope's end in the, in the middle of making this series of films. So that's why to me, to see this final film be as optimistic as it is. I mean, it starts off like... I was just completely thrown for a loop. I mean, you know, the third film was so dark and heavy. I had no idea how they were going to recover. I mean, they left the world in a state of decay that was just, you know, like as bad as what we're facing with a contemporary climate crisis. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it just feels so heavy and defeated, you know, defeated. And then uh, the opening of this film, hope appears uh, and also a, an incredible depiction of, of life you know, that that transcends what this medium usually does. There's just this really beautiful interlude at the start of this film, especially with what happens to the character of Ayanami, that uh, I just, uh, just blew me away. You know, Ano has never really done this, and it's obvious, you know, that Miyazaki has been his mentor because it's just full of pastoral scenes of what it's like for cats to sleep under trains and raindrops and puddles. Yeah, and yeah. It's that attention to detail yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just feels so revitalizing to see that after the the near apocalypse that the, the series is always playing with. But then, you know, he just rips it all out from underneath you. This final film is the ending. Anno said that he couldn't pull off, you know, a decade ago. You know, the final shot of the films now is... Do you, do you all know what that final, final shot is? No, yes. Yeah, so we were talking yeah. about this earlier. We're trying to work out if it's live action or... Like I almost blinked and it and it just became real. Do you know what I mean? Everything just, like, I almost didn't even notice it. It's live action and it's a shot of the small town, the train station in the small town that Anno comes from. And that's why it's not this beautiful cityscape of Tokyo, you know? When, yeah. when, when the camera panned up and you saw like this very prosaic yes. kind of small town, it was like, wow, what is it? It's, it? it's the city he comes from. So he's being that personal. He's ending it on a note of, you know, I escaped into a reality where... I ran off into some happiness and joy after all my struggles and the, that I've been really open. So, you know, I hope that sticks. So that's why I prefer the new movies, because to me, they end on a note of a little bit of hope. Is there anything that you'd like to plug for our listeners or any socials or anything? I mean, I'm a fan. Do you know what I mean? So I'd, I'd like yeah. to know where I can follow you. And- <laughs> yeah, the, the, I'm on Twitter as some bad ideas. I, I, I was, I'm often told I have a lot of bad ideas. So that was my Twitter account. But um, you know, I, I work writing TVs and movie, but um, I, I, I love these things so much. There's an article on Polygon I wrote that is a very, very extensive. It's kind of why I get asked to talk about Evangelion. It's It was just me taking 25 years of stuff I've learned and obsessively sought out and interpreted to try and understand it uh, and, 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 and discuss Hideaki Anno's entire career to where he started, you know, as, as a teenager in a basement making fan films to, to where... He is today. So if you look for that article, it kind of fills in a lot of these gaps I'm talking about. I may have read it before we started watching these films. (laughs) (laughs) Just to try and get a base of... (laughs) (laughs) But as for anything else I want to put, I just want to, I just hope everyone's doing well. And, uh, and, and I'm just 
really oddly grateful for such an apocalyptic series that Anno himself, because these movies were self-financed, which is extraordinary to me. I just feel glad in a, in a, in a year that's been, you know, a year and a half that's been really difficult that it's just going to be available for everyone to watch around the world at the same time. That's really wonderful. Cool, so we're going to move into quickfire questions now. You ready? Right, I'm ready. Cool. Favorite character? Ray. Okay. Yeah, I just like her arc in this film. Beautiful. And yourself? I think it has to be Mari. Yeah. I think it has to be Mari. No, especially after that conversation. <laughs> totally. I'm into, I just love a chaotic neutral. Yeah, all right. Uh, least favorite character? Least favorite character, uh, Gendo. Yeah, no, I've got to stick with Gendo as well. I think he's well. a bit of a douche. Yeah. You know what I mean? uh, favorite scene? Uh, favorite scene. Um, it's the meta bit where it shows them like in a studio and there's like props, like small scale props of like the Evas and the ships. And then there's like cameras and stuff. Okay. And that, yeah, that blew my mind. I, I love that stuff. Cause you wouldn't like, anyway, it just blew my mind. Uh, yourself? Yeah. My favorite, my favorite scene was definitely the end where it just kind of like, I literally blinked and it was live action yeah do you yeah. know what I mean and then we get to discover that it was actually Anno's town the place that he grew up that's definitely my favourite scene I just I just loved the experience of going from animation into like the, the line drawings that still gave you what you needed from the character into the live into the mm. live action that was dope uh, what What about the uh, most WTF moment most WTF that same scene I think it was that same <laughs> scene because I, I like I, I can't I can't repeat it anymore yeah, like, yeah. I, I literally blinked and we were in real life and they were running, and I was just like, "What? How? This is um, like same same thing, same thing, different reason, same thing. I mean, same reason to be fair. What about you? Uh, I think it's uh, the giant Yui, <laughs> where like Shinji's mom is huge, yeah. and then like uh, Masato has to stab her in the eye. Oh, where the Lilith in the eyeball. She was originally the like Lilith face, yeah. and then the the mask comes off, and it's her. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that was like crazy. that. I I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks. And finally, which Evangelion film in the rebuild franchise was your favorite? Well, that's interesting because uh, we both agreed we really enjoyed the third film, and I think for me, it is still the third film. Mm. But after our conversation with Aaron. I'm. Uh, I kind of feel like I need to give the fourth film another watch. Another watch. No, yeah. I feel. I kind of feel the same way. I feel like I. I'm. I'm really torn between how intensely contextual the third one was, but then also how intensely kind of alienating the fourth one was. Does that make sense? Mm, mm. There's so much happening that we don't even have time to talk about yeah. it in a podcast. In a podcast dedicated to it as well. It's crazy. That is how much is happening here. And that's a wrap for today. It is. It might be the end of Evangelion, but Animator Z will be returning next week as we begin a new odyssey with epic Viking anime, Vinland Saga. Yep, we're swapping spears for swords and we're swapping pilots for warriors. Oh, and I'm ready for an adventure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Animator Z. Don't forget to leave us a review, give us a rating and hit subscribe. And if you want to get a jump on next week's episode, watch Vinland Saga now on Prime Video. Animator Z is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video UK. The show is hosted by Shailingo and Beckhill. It's produced by Nicole Davis, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShill. With production coordination from Ellie Aitken and editing by James Payne. With additional research by Ren Skateni. 
If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Peck. What? What happened to Pen Pen? <gasps> I know, right? Bro. Okay, so I told the listeners yeah. that I would find an answer for them. Yeah. And in lieu of having an actual solid answer, uh, I'm going to tell them the answer I've been telling myself. Yeah. Which is that Pen Pen, after the third impact, mm. survived, went away, formed their own little group based on Nerve called Perv. Which <laughs> <laughs> And they've been recruiting other penguins. That's why we see the other penguins. And they're going around and Pen Pen will eventually merge with a penguin, Eva, Peeva. Oh <laughs> and then become a pangel or something. What? <laughs> Do you know what? I but need to see the spin-off. instrumentality project. Oh, my days. The spin-off. I told the listeners and I have an answer. That's it. But if you've got a better so, one, find me on social media. Damn. That's deeper. <laughs> <laughs>